This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Hey guys, um, my name is James. Um, I'll be sharing some scripture with us tonight. Um, it's going to be Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Um, this is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious by your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thanks be to God. Thanks, James. Um, and your, your uh, quarantine stash is looking very strong. Uh, welcome to RUF. I'm John Bourgeois. I'm the campus minister here at Wake Forest, and if this is your first time joining us. We're really glad to have you here with us. In this semester, we've been reading the Sermon on the Mount, which is a, a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples and to the crowds who were surrounding him. Um, it's recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5 through 7. And what he's doing this as he teaches and preaches is he's teaching and preaching and showing how the kingdom of God looks like. He's showing us the kingdom of God and showing that it is an upside-down reality, that life with Jesus as our king is upside down. And tonight we're going to be talking about anxiety and how Jesus gives us a new way to be human in his kingdom. I remember about five years ago when someone first introduced me to the music video for the 21 Pilots song, Stressed Out. And if you haven't seen this video, you need to go watch it. Um, it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's incredibly well done. It opens with a guy, I think he, the lead singer is in his 20s, and he is in his childhood neighborhood which is a middle-class suburban neighborhood with very few trees. And he's there and he's on his big wheel. He's got a Capri Sun 
And he has this strange stage makeup. I thought it was a tattoo, but I learned that this was his, his stage makeup where he takes, I think it's mascara or some sort of face paint and he covers it with his hands and he rubs it on his neck. And so his neck is smeared with black paint and his hands have paint. And he says that this makeup actually represents his insecurity, that he feels like he's suffocating. And this video, as they ride their big wheels through their neighborhood, represents, it's, it's this, this stark meditation on growing up and leaving the security and innocence of childhood only to enter the insecurity and stress of adulthood. And I just want to read to you a few lines from the song. The first verse, he says, I was told when I get older, all my fears would shrink, but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. And then the chorus, he says, he sings, wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. And I think this captures the reality that many of us feel on a daily basis. One of my friends says, if you make it out of college without some mental health thing, you are the exception. You have grown up in an educational system that encourages anxiety. A few years ago, a Wake student told me, um, he said, do you know how to make a Wake Forest student anxious? He said, give them nothing to do. And he's poking fun at the fact that this place so much runs on anxiety that if you stop or you slow down for just a minute, it doesn't create anxiety, but it reveals the anxiety that's there so much of the time. Anxiety is a reality for all of us. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus names it, he diagnoses it, and he offers a solution. So that's my outline for tonight, the definition, the cause, and the solution to your anxiety. So first, what is anxiety? Second, how do we experience it? And third, how does Jesus offer a solution? So first, what is anxiety? In this passage, Jesus mentions anxiety or worry six times. And then in verse 25 and 34, he says, don't be anxious about life and don't be anxious about tomorrow. Our life and our future are two things that you can't do anything about. You can't control your life. You can't predict your future. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying anxiety is fear in the face of uncertainty. Fear, fear is when we are afraid of something objective that is right in front of us. And anxiety is fear on steroids. It's not generated by what we're looking at, but what our imagination is conjuring up. We're thinking of the possible scenarios of what could go wrong in the future. And that's why it's so paralyzing. Anxiety takes on a menacing force because it is so creative, and we get caught in the vicious cycle of what ifs. 19th century psychologist William James wrote, I woke up morning after morning with horrible dread at the pit of my stomach and a sense of the insecurity of life. Fear in the face of uncertainty, fear fueled by insecurity. W.H. Auden in his Pulitzer Prize winning poem from 1948, entitled The Age of Anxiety, he captures this fear in the face of uncertainty when he writes, the wolves will get you if the moths won't. Right? We feel this. We feel this anxiety when something that we love or want is threatened. If you love something and it's threatened, you will feel anxiety. And you know what this is like. Like if you love the approval of your parents and you need to tell them about a decision that you have made or will made that you know they won't like, it causes anxiety. Now, some of us are more prone to anxiety than others. And I do not want to belittle the reality of how many people in our midst suffer with real anxiety disorders. But all of us need to ask the question, what really causes anxiety to well up within us, regardless of our temperament? 
What is the cause of our anxiety? And Jesus answers that question and shows us the cause of our anxiety. He does this in verses 19 through 20. And his answer is that our anxiety, our worry is tied to our treasure. He says this, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or thieves do not break up and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Every fall, when the acorns begin to fall, um, it's really fun to watch squirrels gather. We love doing this as a family. Watch the squirrels gather acorns and bury them. And Mary Clark told me on Sunday that if she watched out the window, a squirrel dig a little hole and then take an acorn and put it in the hole and cover the dirt back on and pat it down with his little, little squirrel, paw, squirrel paws. And that's what we do with treasure. We're just like the squirrels. We bury it. We store it up. Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't care about treasure but rather that as humans, treasure is fundamental to who we are. As humans, we're treasure hunters. Treasure in its most fundamental form, and Jesus names this in this passage, is money. It's not limited to money. And most of us don't wait for it to just fall into our laps, but we go out to seek it and to find it. And this is why we love stories about treasure hunts, Goonies and National Treasure and the Indiana Jones movies and The Hobbit. These stories are filled not just with treasures, but the booby traps and guards are dragons that have been set to guard the treasure. So why do we need to guard or protect treasure? Treasure has great value because it provides security. So whether it's money or approval or something else, your treasure is the thing that you most value. And it's your treasure because you believe that it gives you ultimate security. And Jesus tells us an interesting thing about treasure here. He says, Who, wherever your treasure, Wherever your treasure may be, there your heart is also. He's saying that your heart is going to move towards wherever or whatever your treasure is. And your heart is the center of your personality. It's the core of who we are as persons. It's the spiritual or psychological center of gravity. It's our identity. Our very identity is caught up and bound up with our treasure. Whatever you most value, that will direct your life. And anxiety is caused by placing our security in the wrong things, placing something earthly and finite at the center of our identity, our desire. And Jesus identifies this problem in verse 19. The problem with earthly treasures is they can deteriorate or they can be stolen. And if you make an earthly or finite thing your treasure, it will diminish. It talks about rust and moths, and things just don't fade away, but rust and moths eat things up. Um, I watched a couple of videos of moths and rust at work on YouTube this week, and it's, it's kind of gross to watch moths attack a Persian rug and just devour the wool or watch rust attack a piece of steel and just eat away the metal until there's nothing. And the same is true for thieves. When they come and break in, they don't leave anything behind. Jesus is saying that if your identity is bound up in an earthly treasure, then your identity will erode and rust out in the same way and is vulnerable to being lost in the same way. And instead, Jesus says for us to lay up our treasures in heaven. Now, I know this sounds abstract. It may be like he's saying that we should only think about the life to come and not think about life here and now, but that's not what he's saying because heaven and the kingdom of heaven is a present reality now as well as the future. Jesus is telling us to lay up our treasures in a place where they can never be taken away or destroyed. And the only way that we can get treasure like that is from God himself. 
So question for you, where are you placing your treasure? What is most valuable to you? What is your identity bound up in? What do you find yourself daydreaming about? Whatever we most value, our mind will gravitate towards that place. As you daydream, what do you imagine that the carefree, anxiety-free life will look like? Where are your hopes or dreams placed? Or to put it another way, what do you fear? Tim Keller says that the way that you can find out what is most valuable to you is to ask yourself, what is your worst nightmare? What is the one thing that if you lost it, it would cause you to wonder whether or not life was worth living? If you follow your anxiety, you find your treasure. And Jesus is saying that we need to identify what it is that we most treasure. Because if we want to live a life that is free of anxiety, then we need to place our treasure in the right things. We need to seek security that will truly last rather than the things that fade or or will be snatched away. And here Jesus gives us the solution to our anxiety. He says, lay up your treasure in heaven. How do you do this? Verse 33, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've seen these, 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 there's these signs all over campus right now that say, take control of your anxiety. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. He doesn't tell you to get control of your desire. He doesn't tell you to tamp it down as if you want things too much. But he's actually saying that your desire is too weak. Jesus doesn't say that the pursuit of treasure is a bad thing. He doesn't say stop being greedy, opportunist, looking for a treasure to provide security and change your life. He doesn't tell you to stop the treasure hunt. There's something about treasures. We need them. As humans, we're treasure hunters. True treasure gives us the security we need to live life and to live it well. And our problem is not that we're too intense and too cutthroat in our treasure hunting. It's that we're not cutthroat enough. Your desires for riches and wealth are not too strong, but they're too weak. You're not looking hard enough. And what you and I both need is to become more intensely committed to finding treasure, to finding riches and wealth that give the security that we desperately need. If we keep on searching and following the clues, we'll discover the treasure that we're really after is the kingdom of God itself. Jesus, in another place, refers to the kingdom of God as a treasure in a field. And he says, the treasure, the kingdom of God is like a man who, when he discovers a treasure in a field, he goes and he sells everything he owns. And he buys that field. So what is it about the kingdom of God that makes it so valuable? Why is it a treasure worth giving your entire life to? What is it that Jesus alone can offer us in the kingdom of God that is better, more valuable, and ultimately more secure than anything we could find on our own on this earth? What does he have for us that's better than Jeff Bezos' fortune, more valuable than the greatest marriage and the healthiest family, more secure than the dean's list and the best possible job after graduation? What Jesus offers us in the kingdom of God, the reason that he tells us to seek the kingdom is because it's only in the kingdom of God that we can know God as our father. And knowing God as father is the only thing that provides you the security that you long for and crave. See, if the sovereign Lord of the universe is your father, the one who has all the power in the world, then it doesn't matter what your circumstances are or if they change. His love and care for you never will. It'll never rust. It'll never be destroyed. It can't be snatched away. If he has adopted you into his forever family, you can never be disowned. 
See, the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that he is Father. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting the Trinity, puts it this way. He says, this is important. God is before everything else a Father. He's not primarily a creator or a ruler, but in everything he does, he is beautifully fatherly. It's not that God does being a father as his job and then goes home at the end of the day to go back to being God. He is father all the way down. All that he does, he does as a father. This is who he is. He creates as a father. He rules as a father. And that means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way that any other God would rule over creation. And this is important. Jesus directs our attention here to how God cares for the birds and the flowers. And he actually commands us to study the birds, to carefully study how they live. I love this. Why does Jesus ask us to be bird watchers? The very nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to be effusive, full of energy, bountiful. Creation, all of it, your life, the life of the world, all of it is the outward explosion of the self-giving, other-centered love of God. This God is the very opposite of greedy, hungry, selfish emptiness. In his self-giving, he naturally pours out life and goodness. He is then the source of all that is good. And that means he's not the sort of God who would call people to himself away from happiness and good things, but that goodness and ultimate happiness are to be found with him, not apart from him. And we see this everywhere. This is why Jesus points us to the birds and the lilies. C.S. Lewis was uh, in a letter that he wrote to his friend right after World War II. He said this. He said, talking about birds and beasts, have you ever noticed this contrast? When you read a scientific account of any animal's life, you get the impression of laborious, incessant, almost rational economic activity. But when you study any animal you know, what at once strikes you is their cheerful silliness, the pointlessness of nearly all they do. Say what you like. The world is sillier and better fun than they make out. This is why Jesus tells us to look at the flowers and the birds. If God in his providence created them and cares for them, how will he not care for the children that he has made in his image and adopted into his family? Michael Reeves continues. He says, so what does it mean that God is a father? A father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. For eternity, he has been life-giving. And this helps us. This, this is actually unpacked for us in 1 John 4 when John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Have you ever known someone who is so magnetically kind and gracious, so warm and generous of spirit that just a little time with them affects how you think and feel and behave? Someone whose very presence makes you better, even if only for a little while when you're with them. I know people like this, and they seem to be little pictures of how God is, according to John. This God, he says, is love in such a way, such a profound and potent way, that you simply cannot know him without you yourself becoming loving. Now, I want to say something to those of you who have had a hard time with this because you've had a bad dad. Michael Foucault, who is a 20th century French philosopher, 
Um, the bulk of his writings were about the evils of authority. And it seemed to have all started with the first figure of authority in his life, his own father. Um, but his dad was fearful of having some mamby-pamby for a son. So his dad, who was a surgeon, did what he did, could to toughen up his son. And one of the things he did when Foucault was a child was to ghoulishly force him to witness an amputation. This image certainly has all the ingredients of a recurrent nightmare, the sadistic father, the impotent child, the knife slicing into the flesh, the body cut to the bone, the demand to acknowledge the sovereign power of the patriarch, the inexpressible humiliation of the son having his manliness put to the test. For Foucault, paternal power had not been used to care to nurture, to bless. And so for him, the world father came to be associated with a host of dark images. But friends, God the father is not called father because he copies earthly fathers. He's not some pumped up version of your dad. To transfer the failings of your earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Instead, they're supposed to be the other way around. It's that all human fathers are supposed to reflect God the father. And only some of those do with that well. And when we get confused as to who God actually is, we get this rebuke from Jesus in verse 30, where he says, Oh, you of little faith, you've forgotten the character of your father in heaven. Look at the birds. Look at the father. Look at the flowers. Look at how good your father is. And here's what this means for you. You may have made, you may have made God and his kingdom your treasure, but are you still plagued with anxiety? Are you still caught up in the vicious cycle of what ifs? Jesus is saying to you, where is your faith? Pull it out and apply it to this situation. That's the only way you'll be able to not worry and not be anxious. So what does this look like? How are we to apply our faith um, that God is father to our life? Well, I don't want to give you two uh, situations, two examples of this, what this could look like. Talk about grades and relationships. So first your grades. Maybe your anxiety, your worry leads you to procrastinate or your anxiety causes you to never be able to stop working. If your grades are your treasure, your college years are gonna be marked with anxious toil. But what's under your anxiety about your grades? It's that you long for approval. You long for someone with authority to tell you well done. Now apply your faith to this anxiety. By faith, Jesus gives you his perfect record so that you can never lose your heavenly father's approval. So now by faith, you can work from that approval rather than for your grades. Go get A's, engage in rigorous scholarship, but do it knowing who you are and whose you are, not to prove yourself. Now for your relationships and specifically freshmen, I wanna to talk to you about Rush as that is coming up soon. And I watch students worry and fret over whether or not to rush and whether or not they'll get the bid that they want. And a question I want you to ask yourselves is why does Rush make you so anxious? Is it because your treasure is being accepted by the right group and having your identity marked out for you in clear letters? Having access to friendship and a particular community? Ask any upperclassman. That identity will not satisfy. Like Auden wrote, if the moths don't get you, the wolves will. Now apply your faith to this anxiety. By faith, Jesus gives you a secure identity as a child of God, and he adopts you into the household of God the Father. And in love, he gives you lots and lots of brothers and sisters in the church. So what would it look like to go into Rush secure in your Father's love, free to pursue the kingdom and its righteousness, free to be salt and light all over campus, 
Free to not need a sorority or a fraternity to tell you who you are, but rather to be a place where you get to show others the goodness and kindness of your heavenly father. And regardless if you join a fraternity or sorority or not, he frees you in love to go be on mission with him on campus, going into the nooks and crannies of Wake Forest as a child of the king to be salt and light, to fill up other people's buckets everywhere you go. So go join a fraternity, go join a sorority or not, but don't do it to belong, do it to be light. Not to have it tell you who you are and who your friends are, but to make known who your father is and to introduce this campus to the friend of sinners. So what does it look like to do this, to live with your treasure in heaven? Look at Jesus. The night before his, his death, he was in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to face death on the cross. He was full of sorrow, full of fear, horrified at what was presented to him. And he prayed. He prayed that the cup of God's wrath might be removed from his hands. He was so overwhelmed and distraught that his sweat actually turned into drops of blood. And he was in the midst, in the midst of acute anxiety. He was dealing with the fear, this real fear in the face of uncertainty. And it almost crushed him. And he prayed that even in the midst of this fear, that God would enable him to escape the cross. And yet, with the same breath, he didn't run away, but he entrusted himself to God. Not my will, but thy will be done. And he got up and he walked towards the cross. He didn't get up and walk away. He got up and he walked he took a step towards the cross. And this is why Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's because Jesus pulled out faith and he applied it to his life in the midst of this crushing situation he was dealing with. He endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Do you know what was waiting for Jesus on the other side of the cross? What was it that would enable him to endure not just the pain, but the shame of the cross. If Jesus really is God, what was it that he didn't have? What riches did he not yet have? The only thing that Jesus didn't yet have was you, a renewed, reconciled relationship with you. You were his treasure. You are his treasured possession. And it was the thought of you that enabled Jesus to go to the cross, to endure the cross. It enabled him to hold on, and even now when he thinks of you, you are more precious to him than all the gold and treasure and wealth in the earth. You are his treasure. You are the thing that he delights in. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said to the prophet Isaiah, you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. Jesus is so passionate about you as his treasure that he will go to any length in order to protect you. There is nothing that will snatch his treasure out of his hands. He will use any weapon, any power to protect you from harm. He will protect you to the, at the cost of his own life. And you know this because he already has. He has already given his life for you. And it's only as we understand how we are Jesus's treasure that we can learn to put our full security in the Father and make him our treasure. You really don't need to fear or be anxious or be worried about what life has will throw at you because nothing, nothing can snatch you out of his hands. And if we want to become people who can stand up under anxiety, who can make God and his kingdom our treasure so we can have true security that provides us with the ability to live life well, then we need to make him our treasure. And the only way we can do that is by seeing how he has first made us his treasure.
This is what gives us single-minded devotion. So we can follow him above and beyond all the other things that compete with the devotion of our hearts. This is what enables us to be sure that our whole identity is bound up in being his child and belonging to him. I want to close with this story. This is a story of a woman sharing her experience of coming to know God as father. And she writes this. She says, when I was, a, when I was young, my older sister was hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. And I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. I'm not sure I can explain my motive. He was my daddy too. And I was his daughter. I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high, but I saw the wheelbarrow in the yard and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was. And I rather joyfully clothes pinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and he saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. Now, I hadn't realized the impact that this event and others like it had made on me. I went to a Sonship conference. And during it, a Sonship is a conference where um, people are taught about the fatherhood of God and our Sonship in Christ. So she went to a Sonship conference. And during it, she says, I was repeatedly convicted for not believing God concerning his delight in me and in the gracious nature of my relationship with him now that he has put me into Christ. As I remembered these scenes from the past, I saw that through the years, I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I hadn't been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel, that by faith in Christ, and his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. So the next morning, I told our counselor, Jeff, that I thought I was beginning to understand. I told him the memory and I said, I guess if God the Father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with that ruined shirt, he would forget the shirt and he would hug me. Jeff looked at me and said, you still don't understand fully. God would not overlook the shirt, but he would take it and he would put it on and he would wear it to work. And when somebody commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. That's how good he is. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you that you are our father. Thank you that you are eternally father and that you give yourself to us in the kingdom. Jesus, thank you that you clearly diagnose our worries and you tell us to aim our hearts at the one place where we can have true treasure and security and satisfaction and the love and delight of our Father in heaven. Lord, I pray for my friends as they listen in, and Lord, I pray that you would meet with them and help them as they struggle to believe. Lord, would you help us in our unbelief? Thank you that you are a kind and gracious and gentle Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
And a benediction is a good word from God who is on his throne. And I have good news for you. Jesus is on the throne and he is not up for re-election. Um, so you can have confidence that whatever happens in the next seven days or however long it takes to count the votes, um, God is in heaven, Psalm tells us. Psalm 2 tells us that God is in heaven. And uh, while the nations um, rage and wrestle and toil, God is in heaven and he laughs. Um, you have a good God in heaven who is secure. So hear this good word from his throne. Now may the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Have a great week.